Section five of Aaron Trow by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. And Aaron Trow was now like a hunted fox, doomed to be dug out from his last refuge, with this addition to his misery, that these hounds, when they caught their prey, would not put him at once out of his misery. When first he saw that throng of men coming down from the hilltop and resting on the platform, he knew that his fate was come. When they called to him to surrender himself he was silent, but he knew that his silence was of no avail. To them who were so eager to be as captors the matter seemed to be still one of considerable difficulty. But to his thinking there was no difficulty. There were there some score of men, fully armed, within twenty yards of him. But if he showed a trace of his limbs he would become a mark for their bullets. And then if he were wounded, and no one would come to him, if they allowed him to lie there without food till he perished, would it not be well for him to yield himself? Then they called again, and he was still silent. That idea of yielding is very terrible to the heart of a man. And when the worst had come to the worst, did not the ocean run deep beneath his cavern's mouth? But as they yelled at him and hallooed, making their preparations for his death, his presence of mind deserted the poor wretch. He had stolen an old pistol on one of his marauding expeditions, of which one barrel had been loaded. That, in his mad despair, he had fired. And now as he lay near the mouth of the cavern, under the cover of the projecting stone, he had no weapon with him but his hands. He had had a knife, but that had dropped from him during the struggle on the floor of the cottage. He had now nothing but his hands, and was considering how he might best use them in ridding himself of the first of his pursuers. The man was near him, armed, with all the power and majesty of right on his side. Whereas on his side Aaron Trow had nothing not a hope. He raised his head that he might look forth, and a dozen voices shouted as his face appeared above the aperture. A dozen weapons were levelled at him, and he could see the gleaming of the muzzles of the guns. And then the foot of his pursuer was already on the corner-stone at the cavern's mouth. "'Now, Caleb, on him at once!' shouted a voice. Ah, me! It was a moment in which to pity even such a man as Aaron Trow. "'Now, Caleb, at him at once!' shouted the voice. No, by heavens, not so, even yet. The sound of triumph in those words raised the last burst of energy in the breast of that wretched man, and he sprang forth head foremost from his prison-house. Forth he came, manifest enough before the eyes of them all, and with head well down, and hands outstretched, but with his wide glaring eyes still turned towards his pursuers as he fell, he plunged down into the waves beneath him. Two of those who stood by, almost unconscious of what they did, fired at his body as it made its rapid way to the water, but as they afterwards found, neither of the bullets struck him. Morton, when his prey thus leaped forth, escaping him for a while, was already on the verge of the cavern, had even then prepared his foot for that onward spring which should bring him to the throat of his foe. But he arrested himself, and for a moment stood there watching the body as it struck the water, and hid itself at once beneath the ripple. He stood there for a moment watching the deed and its effect, and then leaving his hold upon the rock, he once again followed his quarry. Down he went, head foremost, right on to the track in the waves which the other had made, and when the two rose to the surface together each was struggling in the grasp of the other. It was a foolish, nay, a mad deed to do. The poor wretch who had first fallen could not have escaped. He could not even swim, and had therefore flung himself to certain destruction when he took that leap from out the cavern's mouth. It would have been sad to see him perish beneath the waves, to watch him as he rose, gasping for breath, 
and then to see him sinking again, to rise again, and then to go forever. But his life had been fairly forfeit, and why should one so much more precious have been flung after it? It was surely with no view of saving that pitiful life that Caleb Morton had leaped after his enemy. But the hound, hot with the chase, will follow the stag over the precipice and dash himself to pieces against the rocks. The beast thirsting for blood will rush in even among the weapons of men. Morton, in his fury, had felt but one desire, burned with but one passion. If the fates would but grant him to fix his clutches in the throat of the man who had ill-used his love, for the rest it might all go as it would. In the earlier part of the morning, while they were all searching for their victim, they had brought a boat up into this very inlet among the rocks, and the same boat had been at hand during the whole day. Unluckily, before they had come hither, it had been taken round the headland to a place among the rocks at which a government skiff is always moored. The sea was still so quiet that there was hardly a ripple on it, and the boat had been again sent for when first it was supposed that they had at last traced Aaron Trow to his hiding-place. Anxiously now were all eyes turned to the headland, but as yet no boat was there. The two men rose to the surface, each struggling in the arms of the other. Trow, though he was in an element to which he was not used, though he had sprung thither as another suicide might spring to certain death beneath a railway engine, did not altogether lose his presence of mind. Prompted by a double instinct, he had clutched hold of Morton's body when he encountered it beneath the waters. He held on to it as to his only protection, and he held on to him also as to his only enemy. If there was a chance for a life-struggle, they would share that chance together, and if not, then together they would meet that other fate. Caleb Morton was a very strong man, and though one of his arms was altogether encumbered by his antagonist, his other arm and his legs were free. With these he seemed to succeed in keeping his head above the water, weighted as he was with the body of his foe. But Trow's efforts were also used with the view of keeping himself above the water, though he had purposed to destroy himself in taking that leap, and now hoped for nothing better than that they might both perish together, he yet struggled to keep his head above the waves. Bodily power he had none left to him, except that of holding on to Morton's arm and plunging with his legs. But he did hold on and thus both their heads remained above the surface. But this could not last long. It was easy to see that Trow's strength was nearly spent, and that when he went down Morton must go with him, if indeed they could be separated, if Morton could once make himself free from that embrace into which he had been so anxious to leap, then indeed there might be a hope. All round that little inlet the rock fell sheer down into the deep sea, so that there was no resting-place for a foot. But round the headlands on either side, even within forty or fifty yards of that spot, Morton might rest on the rocks till a boat should come to his assistance. To him that distance would have been nothing, if only his limbs had been at liberty. Upon the platform of rocks they were all at their wits' ends. Many were anxious to fire a trow, but even if they hit him, would Morton's position have been better? Would not the wounded man have still clung to him who was not wounded? and then there could be no certainty that any one of them would hit the right man. The ripple of the waves, though it was very slight, nevertheless sufficed to keep the bodies in motion, and then, too, there was not among them any marksman peculiar for his skill. Morton's efforts in the water were too severe to admit of his speaking, but he could hear and understand the words which were addressed to him. "'Shake him off, Caleb! Strike him from you with your foot! Swim to the right shore! Swim for it, even if you take him with you!' 
Yes, he could hear them all. But hearing and obeying were very different. It was not easy to shake off that dying man. And as for swimming with him, that was clearly impossible. It was as much as he could do to keep his head above water, let alone any attempt to move in one settled direction. For some four or five minutes they lay thus battling on the waves before the head of either of them went down. Trow had been twice below the surface, but it was before he had succeeded in supporting himself by Morton's arm. Now it seemed as though he must sink again, as though both must sink. His mouth was barely kept above the water, and as Morton shook him with his arm the tide would pass over him. It was horrid to watch from the shore the glaring upturned eyes of the dying wretch, as his long streaming hair lay back upon the wave. "'Now, Caleb, hold him down! Hold him under!' was shouted in the voice of some eager friend. Rising up on the water, Morton made a last effort to do as he was bid. He did press the man's head down, well below the surface, but still the hand clung to him, and as he struck out against the water he was powerless against that grasp. Then there came a loud shout along the shore, and all those on the platform, whose eyes had been fixed so closely on that terrible struggle beneath them, rushed towards the rocks on the other coast. The sound of oars was heard close to them, an eager pressing stroke, as of men who knew well that they were rowing for the salvation of a life. On they came, close under the rocks, obeying with every muscle of their bodies the behests of those who called to them from the shore. The boat came with such rapidity, was so recklessly urged, that it was driven somewhat beyond the inlet, but in passing a blow was struck which made Caleb Morton once more the master of his own life. The two men had been carried out in their struggle towards the open sea, and as the boat curved in, so as to be as close as the rocks would allow, the bodies of the men were brought within the sweep of the oars. He in the bow, for there were four pulling in the boat, had raised his oar as he neared the rocks, had raised it high above the water, and now as they passed close by the struggling men he let it fall with all its force on the upturned face of the wretched convict. It was a terrible, frightful thing to do, thus striking one who was so stricken. But who shall say that the blow was not good and just? Methinks, however, that the eyes and face of that dying man will haunt for ever the dreams of him who carried that oar. Trow never rose again to the surface. Three days afterwards his body was found at the ferry, and then they carried him to the convict island and buried him. Morton was picked up and taken into the boat. His life was saved. But it may be a question how the battle might have gone had not that friendly oar been raised in his behalf. As it was, he lay at the cottage for days before he was able to be moved so as to receive the congratulations of those who had watched that terrible conflict from the shore. Nor did he feel that there had been anything in that day's work of which he could be proud, much rather of which it behoved him to be thoroughly ashamed. Some six months after that he obtained the hand of Anastasia Bergen, but they did not remain long in Bermuda. He went away back to his own country, my informant told me, because he could not endure to meet the ghost of Aaron Trow at that point of the road which passes near the cottage. That the ghost of Aaron Trow may be seen there and around the little rocky inlet of the sea is part of the creed of every young woman in Bermuda. End of section 5 And End of Aaron Trow